Blog Talk Radio. After hearing 59-year-old Lee Woolard's story, you may think he did what any family man would do. Or you may agree with a Florida jury and think he went too far. But either way, you're likely to wonder, does Woolard's punishment really fit the crime? Never, <laughs> never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be here. It, it, I, I still have a hard time believing. It's unbelievable. Lee Woolard's troubles began six years ago. He was a professional with a master's degree in Davenport, Florida, living with his wife and their two daughters and working at SeaWorld. When his youngest daughter, Sarah, began dating a 17-year-old troubled teenager with no place to live, Woolard and his wife, Sandy, took him in. You know, if someone needs help, we'll help them. Did it go okay initially? For about a week. <laughs> it started out, his behavior was fine. I'd ask him if he would take the garbage out or clear off the table, and it was, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. But Sandy Wallard says the relationship with the boy, whom we agreed not to identify, soon soured. This young man was taking my daughter out at night after we had put her to bed and we had gone to bed. And he was disappearing with her. He would disappear for days at a time with her. And she's 16 years old. The Woolards asked him to leave, but nothing kept him out of the house until May 14, 2008. As Lee was taking a nap, his daughter and her boyfriend began to fight. You heard a loud noise. Yeah, it was like, yeah, like, like you were... Throwing, throwing stuff against the wall, like, like he had a tennis ball and he just bumped, you know. But. Then came cries for help. What did you think? I had no idea. Wollard was charged with shooting into a building with a firearm, aggravated assault, and child endangerment. And when he went on trial a year later, a jury convicted him of all charges. And then Judge Donald Jacobson sentenced him. You sentenced him to how long? I sentenced him to 20 years in Florida State Prison, which is the mandatory minimum. 20 years. And what that means is that he will serve every day of 20 years in state prison. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, and what you just heard is beyond disturbing. It is a tragedy that is a level of wrong, if you will, and cruel and unusual punishment is what I call it, mandatory minimums. We're going to deal with that topic tonight as we take a look into the world of mandatory minimums in our criminal justice system. And I'll tell you what, folks, it's going to get very interesting. The information will definitely be important to hear. We're coming from live from Colorado Springs right now. Hang on to your seats, folks. AJC Radio kicks off right now. Uh, and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt, the entire AJC Radio team tonight, as we talk about some issues tonight, mandatory minimums. And I'll tell you what, it's a hot topic on Capitol Hill, as we have heard from members of Congress uh, in regards to uh, some of the nonsense that is actually going on in this country, and we wonder why we have an overcrowding problem. Why are 
people going to prison. And we're going to have a very special guest tonight. Alton Mills was sentenced to life without parole for a drug offense. Him and his mother is going to be joining us in this program, along with Greg Newburn. Uh, he is actually uh, a member of the FAM uh, organization, uh, and that is Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Uh, and I'll tell you what, folks, this is absolutely insanity uh, that people are actually going to prison for really minor things, and they're locking them up. How do you get life without parole for a drug offense? Uh, murderers have walked uh, in 20 years for murdering somebody. Uh, we have an out-of-control situation here in the United States of America. We're going to dig into that tonight. Lisa, the disclaimer for our listeners, please. Yes, we just like to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC radio. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and spending some of your evening with us. And thank you for that, Lisa. And I'll tell you what, folks, uh, feel free to call in. We have a new call-in number uh, that you can actually call in, uh, 319-527-6216. That's 319-527-6216. If you got any comments as we get into this conversation tonight, it uh, should be very interesting as we uh, uncover the world of mandatory minimums. Uh, this is, Cliff, when you hear that, uh, your thoughts? It's sickening to hear that uh, a person would get, uh, you know, life. I mean, first off, drug charges, especially if people are using drugs, uh, you know, it shouldn't be in prison anyway. That should be rehab. That should be some type of some type of help, some type of, um, you know, physical or mental help to help them from being an addict. But then if you have a person who you know, commits a crime while they're on drugs, some they still need help. But even a person selling drugs, you don't give a person, you know, twenty years life, uh, you know, especially as a teenager, a very young person to say, Okay, you're spending the rest of your your life in prison because you had a gram of, of cocaine or, or actually for crack. That's how the law was written. You know, there's a discrepancy between crack and powder cocaine, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but it just it it's not fair. It does not work to leave a person in prison for the rest of the life. After a while, a person, you know, they come to the conclusion that they made a mistake. But um, we as the American society have locked them up and put them in prison so that that mistake can never be rectified. They have to spend the rest of their lives there. And that that just does not fix any problems whatsoever. No, not at all. And it doesn't show there are statistics. There are no statistics, rather, that show outrageous sentencing, mandatory minimums, actually contribute to the crime rate being lowered as a result of that. Uh, has no, there are no factual findings on that. Uh, and it says here that uh, Alton Mills actually made 300 per week uh, in his role, which is less than minimum wage uh, in whatever area he had as far as uh, distributing drugs and things along those lines. Uh, less than minimum wage is what he was making. This is uncomprehendable to me. Uh, he's gonna, I'm not going to get too much into his story. I'd like him to share it with you. Uh, again, he's going to be joining us at the bottom of the hour tonight. I believe his mother as well, as, along with Greg Newburn. And, again, uh, folks doing some things. Uh, and Greg Newburn, again, is with FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. 
Uh, and I'll tell you what, we're going to be digging a lot into uh, this problem, this epidemic, if you will. And I'll tell you what, the most folks that are effective, what you heard on the intro of this show, we're going to give you part one, part, I mean, part two and part three of that interview, uh, CBS special report on the mandatory sentencing regarding this man that was given 20 years because he shot up into the ceiling to kind of defer or deter someone from doing something crazy uh, in regarding to his loved one. That's my understanding of the story. You're going to hear a little bit more of that as we get into the program, and we'll get your thoughts on that. Again, the number to dial in tonight is 319-527-6216. And number again is 319-527-6216. And uh, we're going to dig into that here shortly. Let's go a little bit to some current news going on. Uh, right now, uh, NFL quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, Colin Kaepernick, Ka- Colin Kaepernick uh, actually under fire because he chose to remain seating during the national anthem at a preseason football game, uh, and he was very vocal about why he was doing it. He stated that until that flag means something to all Americans and the, to the communities of color, uh, he said, I'm not going to stand up and, and give honor to a flag where people of color continue to die in the streets of America. Dennis, when you hear that, uh, my thought, he has a right uh, to protest. He has a right to, uh, to sit down and say, I don't agree. Uh, that's what makes America, America. But he's getting a lot of, uh, which doesn't make sense. You have people that come out and say, where are the athletes taking a stand on social issues? When they come out and take a stand on social issues, then you want to demonize them for doing so. Your thoughts, Dennis, on that? Exactly. I mean, uh, everybody has a right uh, to voice or or display their opinion in reference to something that they disagree with. And uh, you're right how they, you know, now all of a sudden uh, he's the worst uh, athlete in the world, you know, because uh, he sat down, uh, you know, during the the national anthem. You know, my thing is I look at it like this. If you're concerned, if you truly believe that, People in this country, and that's people of color, is not getting, you know, the right, you know, end of the deal. Somebody's got to say something. And how do you say it? You got to say it in a way that it gets people's attention or not. If you don't do that, no one's listening. And, you know, uh, a lot of what people are saying is that, oh, he's disrespecting the military. You know, they had... uh, they had um, a woman on who, you know, she was she was a gold star uh, family mother who her, her son died in war. Um, they also had another soldier over on who he was in he was in uh, special forces. And, you know, and Dennis, I really want to get your take on this being a, a you know, a Marine and a, a soldier in the Army. But, you know, you have uh, these people who say, well, he should not stand up for the flag. The flag is about those who give their life. To me, you know, the flag is not only about those who give their life, but every every citizen of the U.S. And the the fact that those who did give their life or put their life on the line, that they fought for us to have the freedom of speech and expression and every other freedom that the Constitution uh, affords every American citizen. So I don't think it's a fact that I'm disrespecting you or that Colin Ka- Kaepernick disrespected any soldier when he sat down during the anthem. He was saying, in my opinion, that I want to ensure that when the flag is raised, that when I stand up, it's because it's because the freedoms are afforded to every American citizen. Like the like the anthem says that you know we're it, it's everybody, not just some, but everybody. And until that standard is upheld, I think that is what he is protesting. And uh, from his own words, that's what it is. But I don't think it is anything against those military families. And and I doubt that. Uh, 
the military, we get used a lot. You know, everybody wants to jump on the military bandwagon. Everybody's so concerned about the military. Uh, but if they really were concerned, they'd really be taking care of our soldiers, you know, making sure that when they come home, they're not sleeping under bridges and stuff like that. But it's all to, sometimes, you know, don't get me wrong. I appreciate those that are truly uh, patriots, those that truly are concerned about our military. And we do have some folks out there. But a lot of times we use the military as a crutch. You know what I'm saying? We say that we, we care about the military, yet we got thousands and thousands of soldiers living under bridges and, and you know, barely making ends meet, you know, getting not getting the medical care that they need. But yet we're all hua, hua, hua when it comes to our military. So I, I don't look at it like that. You know, show me. You know, don't just talk about it and don't use the flag as, as a portrayal of our military. Don't get me wrong. We fought for that flag. And, 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 and soldiers still do today. But it's about what you said. What is the flag about? What am I fighting for? I'm fighting for freedom. And freedom deserves to go to every person in this United States of America, regardless of their color or where they come from. And, and sometimes it seems as though that's not true at all. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, folks, this is something that, again, the gentleman just took a seat. That I don't believe that America is honoring the flag for all its citizens. And if that's the case, I, I will sit down. We have, every person has their own conviction. Uh, he's entitled to that. And they, saw, uh, they showed some fans actually burning his jersey. Uh, all types of nonsense. And uh, at the end of the day, we have a right to say what we believe uh, and to stand on what we believe and should not be criticized for doing so. Uh, that is what makes this a democracy, and we need to respect that. Of all people that have an opinion, whether we agree or not, uh, this is the right that uh, our forefathers set in place for us to be able uh, to do that. I believe Martin Luther King said, I read somewhere we have the right uh, to protest, and that, uh, that definitely is not going to change. Uh, you can read more about that on any of your news stations, national, across the country. It's everywhere. Uh, and going to now uh, Brock Turner. Uh, the former Stanford swimmer found guilty of three felony sexual assault charges uh, is actually leaving prison tomorrow uh, after serving, I believe, three, two and a it half, two months, two months uh, on a six month sentence uh, for good behavior. Uh, his sentence was caught some, cut somewhat short. Um, a lot of outrage about this, uh, given the circumstances in which he raped. Uh, this young lady uh, who was intoxicated, I guess, passed out from, from drinking, uh, but he took advantage of the situation and assaulted her. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there's no excuse for any type of assault, whether the female is passed out or not. Uh, it's assault. Apparently, there's been a bill passed uh, in the state uh, that any rape, whether it's unresponsive, uh, if it's a lady that's unresponsive, if she's drunk and she... There were issues in this country where there were young ladies that were drunk but didn't remember whether they gave consent. Um, when you think about this, uh, and again, uh, had this been an African-American that raped a white girl, which this young lady was, I can guarantee you, without any fear of contradiction, he would be looking probably at an indeterminate sentence to life for rape. Exactly. I, agree. I, I, I guarantee you better believe he would not have gotten six months, Lisa. 
Uh, that's the status quo in this country right now that I guarantee you. Lisa, your thoughts on that one? Yeah. I think, I think it's just, it's absolutely disgusting. Uh, when I look at that situation, I think it's, it's just horrendous. I think the system completely failed this woman. I think the judge should be disbarred. Although I know I hear that he's no longer practicing uh, criminal cases. He's moving to civil cases from here on out uh, for the rest of his career. But he shouldn't even have a career after doing something like that. If you can take an, something, a crime like that and say, basically, uh, well, we don't want to punish you. We, I don't really want to punish you for that. I have to do something, but I don't really want to punish you for that. That's just, it's just so disgusting that that could even happen. It's just, it's just it's mind-blowing. Well, and I think the issue is, and, and, and we'll make this point as well, that the judge was in, the dis, in his discretion per the law, and that goes to the core of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you have judges that have discretion that abuse it, and then you have judges that don't have discretion where tonight's show speaks to that, where mandatory minimums are put in place. You're talking about a catch-22. You, you cannot win. win. So you give judges discretion and take mandatory minimums off, but then, how do you check and balance the corrupt judges that want to do whatever they want to do? Exactly. And throw them in prison for however many. I mean, there has to be a balance, I believe, a check and balance in the mandatory minimums. That needs to be totally done away with. And then there should be a check and balance system with the judges who are handing out these sentences that they are reasonable. Someone needs to be an oversight to these judges to say, look, you have your discretion, but you're going to be monitored as well. Exactly. We're going to take mandatory minimums off the table because it is sorely abused and it's proven that way. But then we're going to put a check and balance with these judges that have too much power to do what they do. And we're going to get into that conversation. Again, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to call in to 319-527-6216 tonight as we get into this discussion. I'll tell you what, the corruption in this country – And the statement was made going back to Colin Kaepernick uh, that, well, he makes millions of dollars. So if he doesn't like it, maybe he should try to go. I believe Donald Trump made that statement that maybe he should go to another place that can support him the way the United States has. Uh, I tell you what, it doesn't give you a license to violate somebody's rights uh, to protest and to make that statement. Well, he needs to leave the country if he's got a problem with it. Well, half the country would be gone because half the country... Matter of fact, 70% believe the country is in a horrible state right now. So do we all pack up and leave the United States? No. We correct the problems. We correct the bigotry. We correct the racist rhetoric in this country and start treating citizens all fairly. That is critical, critically uh, important. And those are things that we're going to be getting into tonight. Uh, When you look at this situation, ladies and gentlemen, I met a young man doing my wrongful conviction uh, that was Locked in his apartment. Uh, He thought the cops were going to get in and hurt him. So he cracked the door and shot the opposite direction into the ground where the cops were. They gave him 72 years for each bullet. Total for, for each bullet that was fired, they gave him, I believe it was 10 to 12 years per. Because they said it was attempted murder because a bullet could have ricocheted and got one of the officers and all the officers that were present. This man's doing 72 years, which honestly, in a moment, he was simply just trying to keep them from coming into the house. Mm. And I could not believe his sentence when he shared it with me. This is the nonsense. And something, you need a complete overhaul of sentencing in this country because it has been abused and it is way, way 
uh, out of line. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming right back. We're coming live from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Temperature right now, 72 degrees, a little touch of fall, uh, slowly approaching uh, in our nation's capital, 86, mostly sunny out there. New York, 81, L.A., 84. We looks like we're dipping out of the 90s and headed to the fall of the year. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming right back here on AJC Radio as we deal with an important issue, doing away in the injustice of mandatory minimums. We're coming right back on the other side of this break. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. How may I help you? My husband and I just got in a fight, and he hit me. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. We have a big problem. And we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. 
we must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote, and it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is Lamont Banks, and this is AJC Radio, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt. And tonight we tackle a subject tonight, mandatory minimums. What in the world is going on with that? Where did it come from? Uh, And our understanding through our research, this has come through a lot of local legislation uh, at the local level in states across the United States where mandatory minimums has become an issue, not only, not only in the state issue, uh, but I believe in the federal uh, system as well, uh, overcrowding, uh, wrongful, really wrongful convictions, but outrageous sentencing, violating law, uh, considered cruel and unusual punishment, you name it, it has every type of violation uh, of the Constitution and the rights of Americans uh, Right across the board, and uh, tonight we're going to get into that conversation. We were talking earlier uh, in regards to Alton Mills. We're waiting right now. He's going to be joining us, and also uh, Greg Newborn, Newborn, excuse me, is going to be joining us as well. He is up with uh, Fam, known as Families Against Mandatory Minimums. They're going to give us some insight on where this problem comes from, why people are fighting, why are there advocates out here saying. Uh, this is simply not right, Dennis. And when we look at the totality of circumstances, uh, people will try to make an argument on both sides, that if we don't lock these people up, uh, our communities are going to be unsafe. They basically scare people with fear tactics, uh, scare taxes, if you will. Uh, in reality, the statistics just don't show that. How messed up is that when we deal with a, a system and a culture like this? Uh, truly, when, it's, when it becomes a fear thing and uh, trying to – I just don't get it. Again, uh, some of these sentences are, are just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, especially when it comes to uh, when, when we start talking about the drugs, I mean, where they where they didn't hurt no one or no one got hurt. But yet you're still giving them life. I mean, without 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 parole, life without parole is someone usually that is so close on the line of the death sentence. Or we're going to go ahead and just give them life because the crime the crime was so horrific. And it's hard to prove uh, a Capital One murder. Right. Uh, so they'll go life without parole. How do you equate that to a drug, a drug, uh, a drug case? Exactly. I mean, you tie the hands of uh, our judges. And uh, as you alluded to earlier, I mean, while it's kind of like a no win situation, I mean, you tie the hands of our judges and they, you know, they have to, uh, you know, sentence you with this minimum uh, sentence. And then you untie their hands, and uh, you got some that, that go a little rogue and uh, and abuse that power. So it, it's very difficult, you know, when you're talking about what do we need to do as a nation. We need to overhaul our justice system. That's what we need to do as a nation. 
I mean, it's starting to sound like, you know, folks, normally if there's an overhaul, uh, there seems to be some good within the system. You know, we'll just do some improvements, some renovations, get it better. Right. I think we're past that in this country with our criminal justice system. I think you tear it down with a, with a bulldozer and rebuild from the ground up. Yeah. That's how messed up this system is. Uh, and that's something that, that just does not make sense. And no matter how you look at it, the people that suffer are people in communities of color, inner cities. Why is that? Because you're dealing with a bigot society. You're yeah. dealing with a racist system. And it is proven. That's, that's just true. not an opinion. Blacks are sentenced longer to sent to uh, their sentences are longer than the average white individual in this country. Uh, this that's because they are black. The statistics support that, and that's something that is just unbelievable to me that this continues uh, to be a problem in this country, Cliff. Yeah, it, not only uh, you know the the sentencing as far as okay you do the same exact crime and uh and you know and there's a disparity in sentencing i mean that's the that is a glaringly obvious uh you know racist issue as far as the justice system. but then you have where um even the the you know most mandatory minimums are something about about drugs uh you know if you if uh you were involved in a crime and it it included this type of drug heroin cocaine uh, crystal meth or whatever, but I mean, you even look at the at the law that came out with crack versus powder. That uh, a crime that included crack cocaine, uh, you the sentence was ten times longer than a crime that involved powder cocaine of the same amount. And the the whole reason was, you know, crack cocaine was something that was found in the inner city in black in uh you know black neighborhoods, black communities. And powder cocaine is something that was found, uh, you know, in the suburbs with mostly, uh, you know, white people. And so then when those when just to say, OK, you're going to get sentenced a minimum of 10 years for having a one gram of cocaine. But you get caught with a gram of powder, uh, you're going to get rehab and have to do some community service. That right there is just totally disgusting. And, you know. It's an abomination of, of uh, ju- the justice system. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you, we're going to be talking to Alton here uh, shortly. And uh, we're going to be bringing on Greg Newburn, a uh, gentleman working for FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Uh, and I'll tell you what, they got some information. I think that's going to be definitely in, uh, influential tonight, uh, hopefully on all of our listeners, as we take a look into this problem. Greg, are you there? Yes. Welcome tonight to AJC Radio. We appreciate you taking time tonight out of your schedule uh, and joining us for this program as we discuss the horrific uh, issue of mandatory minimums. I don't think there's uh, one more qualified to speak to it, uh, such as yourself. I got an opportunity to speak to Layla yesterday, and we appreciate you taking some time tonight uh, to share with our listeners around the world uh, to do that. Greg, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm just going to give you the floor, introduce yourself to our listeners, and talk to us as we get into this dialogue regarding uh, mandatory minimums tonight. And the, of course, we're going to be talking to Alton Mills here shortly uh, and bringing him in, uh, hopefully, to the conversation where he can explain just the injustice that has happened. Go ahead and introduce, introduce yourself to the people, and we'll get involved with this dialogue now. Okay, great. Uh, again, my name is Greg Newburn. I'm the state policy director for a nonprofit group out of Washington, D.C. called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, or FAM. Uh, I'm actually based in Florida, but FAM has been in Washington, D.C. since 1991. Uh, so we just recently celebrated our 25th anniversary 
fighting for fair and proportionate sentencing laws at the federal level and at the state level. Um, and, and what we do basically is we try to reform those mandatory minimum laws. We try to make them better or we try to repeal them when we can. And we do that at the federal level. You guys were talking about the crack powder disparity. We were involved in, in reforming that and reducing that disparity and helping folks um, uh, reduce their sentences if they were on the, the, the worst end of that. And we do it at the state level, too. Uh, virtually all 50 states have some kind of mandatory minimum. A lot of them have to do with drugs. So you see through the years, and we're talking 40 years of experimentation now, uh, you know, with the 650 lifer law in Michigan, with the Rockefeller drug laws in New York, a lot of states followed suit, and we see what's happened every time, right? Uh, the, the prison population swells. It doesn't impact crime, and it doesn't impact drug abuse. It doesn't impact drug trafficking. But the, the people of those states spend billions of dollars locking up thousands of low-level offenders until the, they reach the point where they realize that this is not working, uh, and that's when we can come in and help them uh, make their laws a little bit better. So we've been doing it for 25 years. We're a, sort of a little engine that could nonprofit in Washington, but I think we, uh, we do a lot of good work and try to help as many people as we can. And, Greg, we talk about a lot on this program and regarding that the culture that has been created in our society, uh, dealing with mandatory minimums, we talk about how the uh, people, uh, communities of color, are affected even more, the racial disparities in sentencing. Uh, and I was making the point, I want to get your thoughts on it, that if we lift mandatory minimums, we do understand that Congress uh, is very much involved with, with definitely getting that off the table. Members of Congress that we have spoken to, that is a very high priority issue, that mandatory minimums are ridiculous, that they should not be out there. How do we then bring judges in check who have an issue, who say, okay, if you lift mandatory minimums, then I can do whatever I want to do. And if I don't like you, because we have found that racial disparity has now entered the courtrooms as judges hand down sentencing as well. How do we fix both of those issues at one time? Yeah, I mean, and that's a good question. I'd say two things. Uh, One, there's really no way to eliminate discretion in sentencing. What mandatory minimums do is, you know, they don't eliminate that discretion. They just simply transfer it from the judge to the prosecutor. So you could get the same kind of discrimination uh, with prosecutor-based sentencing that you could with with judge-based sentencing. And what we've actually found over the last 40 years when the U.S. Sentencing Commission has looked at this, when state sentencing commissions have looked at this, uh, racial disparities in sentencing actually drop when mandatory minimums are reformed or repealed. Uh, So so that was actually one of the reasons that they were pitched in the first place was to – create what the proponents of these sentences called uniformity and consistency in sentencing. And they said, well, look, if everybody gets the same sentence, then we won't see racial disparities. But again, what you saw was that these things just didn't go to trial as often. Instead, those disparities happened at the prosecutor level when they were taking plea bargains, and they were actually made worse than they were before mandatory minimums got there. But to answer your question, you know, what happens when we, uh, we eliminate them? We at FAM, of course, support judicial discretion. We support judge-based sentencing. But I think discretion is only part of the analysis. I think you've got to have transparency, and I think you've got to have accountability. Voters and people in local communities need to know what judges are doing. And it could be the case that a judge is giving real criminals a slap on the wrist, turning them back out on the street to, to terrorize local communities. And voters need to be aware of that, and they need to be able to hold them accountable either through the ballot box or through the appointment process 
holding the politicians accountable who appoint the judges. But I think, you know, and one thing to remember is with sentencing, there is no perfect system. It's inherently imperfect. You're going to have errors, and you're going to have errors of where sentences are too harsh, and you're going to have errors where, where sentences are too lenient. But the best we can do is a system that allows a neutral arbiter in the form of a judge who doesn't have an interest in getting a conviction or an acquittal, who is held accountable to the voters either directly or indirectly and can be held accountable on appeal as well, uh, give that judge discretion, make it transparent to the voters, and then hold judges accountable if they go off the reservation too often. You're not going to do better than that, but the problem is we're, we're so far away from that ideal right now. We've got a lot of work to do. No, absolutely. I agree with you on that, Greg. And joining us on this conversation, Greg, is Alton Mills, a uh, uh, gentleman who we were talking about earlier, sentenced to life without parole for a drug offense. Uh, there was a show this weekend, uh, MSNBC, uh, where the story was being told. And Alton, are you there? Yes, sir, I'm here. How are you doing today? Alton, good to talk to you. We're doing great. Thank you so much. We have Greg Newburn uh, from FAM. I understand that you're very familiar with FAM. Yes, I am. Okay. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing well. I'm good to talk to you, man. Congratulations on everything. Thank you. Okay. Well, we're going to both get into the dialogue. Oh, now I want to just give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners, and we're going to get into this dialogue, uh, uh, all of us, all of our listeners, and Greg and, and yourself, and we're going to discuss this. I want to give you an opportunity to tell what happened to you when we heard about your story. I said, wow, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable, but I want to leave. I want to give the floor to you, Alton, and uh, share with the people and share with us what you went through and what happened here. Well, uh, my name is uh, – hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Alton Mills. Uh, I got the clemency from President Obama December the 18th of 2015. I was released from prison after doing 22 years and some change. Uh, January the 14th of 2016, I have been home going on eight months, and I'm doing very well right now. Uh, I was convicted of a conspiracy in 1994 at 24 years old. Uh, The judge had sentenced me to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, The reason why is because I uh, I was on probation, and I had never been to prison a day in my life. Uh, So this was my third strike. So the government seemed fit that since it was my third strike, they filed something called an 851 enhancement. An 851 enhancement, what it does is it doesn't double your time, it quadruples your time. Now, the 851 enhancement comes along with those that refuse to work with the government, and it's called double jeopardy, which is the punishment that you get for not working with the government on their behalf. Mm-hmm. No, I'm uh, I'm familiar with the terminology enhancement. In Colorado, the state calls it habitual, uh, where they give you right. the habitual and they triple your time. But you, I mean, it's just it's a way. And my understanding of research of that law is that you'd have to be guilty uh, for the habitual that you've committed the same type of act or crime. But Colorado abuses it left and right because you can get a misdemeanor. And they say, well, this is your third time doing this. We're going we're gonna to give you the habitual. Otherwise, as, as Greg was alluding to, they use that to threaten people and say, we're going to give you this, so you need to take, take the plea. A plea. And, uh, I, exactly. and, and, yeah, and, and we, we exactly. are also – go ahead, Alden. 
It, exactly, and uh, that's what it was with me when uh, when uh, my attorney at the time, uh, his name was uh, William Tice, and uh, he came to me and told me that uh, the prosecutor wanted to cut a deal, and he wanted me to testify against my co-defendants, and uh, I just wasn't raised like that. You know, right. my mother and my father raised me to, you know, if I do something, whether it's wrong or right, stand on my own two feet and be a man about it. Okay, and, and we understand your mother is joining us tonight as well. Marcia? Yes, sir, she's right yes, there. Yes, I'm here. Hello, welcome to the program. We don't want to leave you out. Welcome, and uh, we're going to get your thoughts as well on, on what you've seen and how this has affected you. And, and Alton, uh, how did you – I mean – you know, I was wrongfully convicted in Colorado. I was, I did seven years for something that I didn't do. But how do you go into the to the prison system knowing that this is life without, at least in your mind, thinking I'm never getting out of here for a drug case? What was your thought process during that time? Were you like, this can't be happening? Well, uh, when I first went in, I was I was lost. At 24 years old, with a natural life sentence, I was lost. And then they sent me to one of the worst penitentiaries in the federal, federal prison, which was Leavenworth USP. So when I went in, it was just that I ran into guys that had already been down and had started like I did at the age I did, and they was giving me some insight on how to do my time and uh, how to better myself while I was being incarcerated. So I started reading books. I started studying religion, you know, and I worked out and, you know, I just kept uh, good family ties with my mother and my family and my father. You know, that helped me a lot. If you don't have no good family ties and you got a lot of time to do, it's, it it hurts. But me, I had good family ties. Uh, as my daughter came of age, I started having uh, contact with her through letters and phone calls uh, with the help of my mother. And as she got even older, my mother and my father started bringing her to see me. Well, I'll tell you what, Alton, Greg, when you hear that, and again, I know that Alton is, is a part of uh, very much a part of the fam family, if you will, families against mandatory minimums. Uh, what were your thoughts on Alton's case when you heard it? Yeah. I mean, it obviously shocks the conscience, um, but I'll say, you know, we see so many of these that it, it almost stops shocking the conscience. We right. expect them. And it's still, I mean, it really does. Every time we hear about them, the, the entire staff is still flabbergasted when we hear about these cases. We still get so personally invested in, in trying to help these folks and, and change the laws. Uh, but, I mean, there are thousands of similar cases out there. And, you know, part of what FAM does and is profile these cases so that people who otherwise might not have any clue about a case like Alton's case uh, will suddenly start to take interest in it uh, because it's the human cost of these things that, that really is the highest toll. There's a reason that we're called Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Our, our founder and, and current president, Julie Stewart, her brother went to federal prison for five years on a marijuana charge, and, and she left her job to start FAM when she realized there were so many other people who were in the same situation. And we try to be a resource for families of, of loved ones who are in prison, especially serving mandatory minimums. We try to be a source of information for folks who are on the inside who might otherwise, you know, there are a ton of rumors that go around prisons. The, you know, everybody thinks they're always going to get out and, you know, they're changing new rules and reentry and things like that. So we try to be a good resource for folks inside. 
And then we just try to tell their stories. And when we walk into legislators' offices and, and Congress uh, people's offices and senators' offices, and we have these stories of real people who have been impacted by this, families that have been broken up, lives that have been ruined because of just these ridiculously inflexible sentencing laws where the judges object and the state attorneys and the district attorneys didn't really even think that it was necessary, but they used it as a cudgel in, in getting a plea or whatever. Um, these, these stories can be really compelling, and, and I've certainly seen it here in Florida where we've taken stories here in, in the state and said, look, this is what the law is doing to people. And then those stories have been powerful enough that legislators moved to, to change that. And I think we're, as you mentioned earlier, Congress is finally, uh, you know, we've been doing this 25 years, but Congress is finally starting to take note. And it's not just on the left. It's not just Democrats. There's right. a lot of Republicans. You know, Speaker Ryan himself is, is on record saying that we really need to rethink who we put in prison and for how long and for why. So I, we really are at a crossroads right now, and I think it's in part because, and I hate to even say it, but it's in part because folks like Alton have had their, their terrible experiences that we've been able to draw on them and show that it's, it's not unique. It's, it's, uh, it's widespread. It's structural, and it needs to be fixed that way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and Marsha, oh, go ahead, Alton. Uh, go ahead. She can go ahead. Go ahead. No, she can go ahead. I just want to yes, get Marsha. Yes, Marsha. I didn't hear you. Can you, okay, let me ask you a question, Marcia. Um, when this happened to your son, everybody usually believes that if you raise your children right, tell them to do the right thing, and that basically the system is going to be okay, that things kind of even themselves out, that if you're not guilty or if, say, you make a mistake, you're not given the death sentence as a result. And I'm going to tell you right now, life without parole is a death sentence. Uh, your life is over as you've known it. When this happened to Alden, uh, what were your thoughts? How did you encourage him to say, look, we got to fix this? What was your mindset, Marcia, during this time? Okay. Uh, when he got arrested, you know, I had went down there uh, to the federal building, and the lady was telling me that, um, you know, your son getting life in prison. I said, life in prison? I said, you know, what did he do? You know, uh, I said, he didn't kill nobody. I said, I know people that uh, don't even get life in prison, you know, for killing someone. But, you know, I, I thought it was a nightmare. I said it's going to be all over with. But I was looking for him to just maybe uh, maybe get five to ten years and he'll be home. But after yeah. I seen that them five to ten years had passed, then I said I know he's uh, probably going to get life. But I was looking for him to come home. I, I know they couldn't have gave him no light, you know. So the day that he told me he was coming home and stuff, you know, um, that was a relief, you know. I said, there is a God, you know, and uh, Obama yeah. was real good by doing this year. I said, it'll never be another Obama. Right, right. You and think? I think that, yeah, I hear you. Um <laughs> Hey, I'll tell you, they say that uh, the president has done nothing uh, in his term there. And I think even his zeal with criminal justice reform, uh, he's done more than I believe what any other president has done uh, and continues to want to really solve our criminal justice system. And I want you guys, I'm going to play a clip for you folks. I want to get your thoughts when we come back. Uh, and it's talking about a judge, a judge, a retired judge that says the impact of, and the importance of ending mandatory sentencing. Let's see what she had to say. 
mandatory minimums requiring judges to sentence drug offenders to a minimum sentence, even if he or she believes some leniency is merited. The debate is hot in Massachusetts, thanks in large part to a single statement made two weeks ago by the Chief Justice of the state's Supreme Judicial Court. That would be Ralph Gantz. I am convinced that minimum mandatory sentencing in drug cases will be abolished. The only question is when. Why am I so sure? Because doing so makes fiscal sense, justice sense, policy sense, and common sense. And the response to that came fast and furious, including from Suffolk County DA Dan Conley, who said it was an effort to return to a failed policy of 30 years ago. And he told the Dorchester reporter, quote, judges are operating in a vacuum. They don't understand how drug traffickers and drug dealers and gang members are turning some neighborhoods in our city into very, very violent communities. It's a debate with very high stakes. And joining me now to hash this one out further are former federal court judge Nancy Gertner. Good to see you, judge. And former Essex County prosecutor Bill Fallon. Good to see you, too. So make the case. Why are mandatory minimums a bad idea? Because they are always overbroad. They always sweep within them people that they were not meant to to cover conversation with one of the judges of the Suffolk Superior Court said that, for example, there are sweeps of on the Boston Common and you wind up with someone who, you know, is spending day on the Boston Common and at night in the St. Francis House who winds up with a two year or five year mandatory minimum sweeps too broad. No indication that it actually controls crime. The crime rates have been declining regardless of the sentencing policy. And the thing is, it takes all discretion from the judge and gives it to the prosecutor. And while D.A. Connolly may be fabulous, the thing about prosecutorial discretion is that it's not transparent. We don't know why they make the decisions they do. And the overwhelming number of people accused of mandatory minimum drug offenses are black. Well, there you have it. Judge making a compelling argument that the bottom line is that she's not mixing any words about it, that this is ridiculous. And when you take when you take the power from the judge and hand it to the prosecution, who many times are motivated, whether it's by uh, bonuses or whatever it is, trying to get as many conviction rate uh, convictions as they can under their belt. You give them that type of discretion. We have a situation uh, exactly uh, like Alton Mills. Greg, your thoughts first, and Alton, I'll come to you next, Greg, of, of, of what she said. Yeah, I mean, she's exactly right, and, and we at SAM call that the trial penalty because we have a Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial by a jury of our peers. And what will happen is a prosecutor will come to us and say, we're charging you with a crime, and, and while you're innocent until you're proven guilty, we're charging you with a crime. And you have the option of pleading guilty to that crime, uh, and you can have whatever sentence it is, five years in prison, ten years in prison. But if you choose to exercise your right to trial, if you choose mm-hmm. to exercise that, that fundamental constitutionally guaranteed right, then the only sentence the judge can give you is life in prison, which means the difference between the plea offer and the sentence you're given after trial, whatever that number of years is, is the penalty you pay for exercising your constitutional mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And that not only is that unjust on its face, it often leads to the most perverse outcome. Because what happens is the following. The people who know they're guilty and know that, you know, I did everything that they're alleging and it, whatever, they take the plea. The people who think, you know what, I've got a pretty good defense here. I've got a colorable defense, and I'm going to make them prove beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt the elements of the offense. 
as is my right. They roll the dice, they go to trial, and they're the ones who get the hammer. So you get the folks who are really high-level drug couriers, they're traffickers, they're violent people potentially. They take plea deals and get out well before relatively lower-level people in the drug trade who opt for trial. That's exactly the reverse of what they promised us when they passed this law. It works exactly backwards, where people like Alvin go to prison for life, and much more serious offenders get out much sooner because they cooperate with prosecutors and take the plea deal. It's insane. No, it really is. And I'll tell you what, uh, that is insanity at its highest level. So if I want to go to, if I be, say, for instance, uh, Greg and Alton and Marcia, say you're innocent. The thought is, man, I didn't do nothing. Man, let's go to trial. There's no way they can prove I did anything. But now it's a hidden act of punishment. Right, and the prosecutors have taken the mandatory minimums and they use them as leverage. uh, I mean, they use them as leverage. They use them as uh, extortion. They they use it as – I mean, you're being held hostage by the prosecutor who says, you know what? If you if you do a plea, I can give you five years right now. You try to fight me at trial, and I'll see to it that you get the mandatory minimum of twenty years for for each charge that I want to bring against you. It has it has gone from saying, okay, here is something that ensures, uh, you know, like you said, Greg, that that the real criminals are punished for what they do, and it has taken the the person who says, you know, I am not pleading. It is against everything that I believe to lie, to say I committed a crime when I did not. And I'm sure that the justice system will, will uh, you know, prevail in the end. I'm innocent, and it will show that I'm innocent, and a jury will find me innocent. And the prosecutors ensure that they get a conviction. And, and that, I think, is one of the main issues is the, there has to be something done with the level of, uh, quote-unquote, power that the prosecutor has with the sentencing guidelines. Oh, they can't just pile on... Uh, you know, uh, another count after another count after another count, and a person who may have committed one robbery, all of a sudden you got 20 counts of things that the prosecutor piled on, and you end up spending life in prison. No, oh, absolutely. And and Alton, you do you have a time restraint tonight? Are you good with us? We're going to take a quick break and come back. How much time do you have with us, Alton? That you can you can stay with us? Well, I'm at home, so we are we are good. Okay, so we're good. And Greg, do you have a, do you have some time to come back with us? On yeah, happy, happy to stay and talk. Absolutely. Okay. I, I hey, appreciate. Uh, yeah. Before we go to break, I was I really wanted to comment on what the judge said. Go ahead, please. Uh, first and foremost, uh, they have a thing called a conspiracy, right? And the conspiracy mm-hmm. theory is what they use when they use they use that to. Get the ones that are innocent doesn't have anything to do with the case at all. And the reason why they use the conspiracy theory is to use them to put them in the box, which is the stand, ladies and gentlemen, to tell what they know or what they don't know. So nine times out of ten, what they do is the prosecutor gets these individuals that don't know nothing about the case, co-rehearse them, put them in that box so they can tell on the individual's that are being charged. And what they use is a theory called ghost dope. Drugs that never have been seen, never been sold, and not even in the courtroom. So that is one of the things that they use. Now, I have ran into dudes 
in my incarceration. I had a friend from Kansas City. He got incarcerated in 1986, right? The judge mm-hmm. did not know how to trial their case. So when they changed that law in November, because he got arrested in the early part of 86, in November, when it only took them 20 seconds to change that law to 101 racial, they went in front of the judge and got their time, and the judge said, you know what, I don't even know what, how much time to give you guys, but I'm going to give you something fair. And the head of the conspiracy, which was my friend, he got 65 years. The lowest oh. person on the total poll got 45 years. Them guys spent 28 years in prison before they got released. Oh, wow. Wait a minute. I want to make sure I'm clear. The judge said he was going to give them something fair, and that's what he came down with? That's what he came down with. And this case was out of Kansas City, Missouri. Well, we're going to get more into that dialogue here on the other side of this break. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, joining me tonight, Greg Newborn from Family Against Mandatory Minimums. Alton Mills' uh, sentence was commuted by President Obama in December 18, 2015 was then recently released, was sentenced to life without parole for a drug offense. Uh, Seems highly, highly inappropriate, and that's putting it mildly. We're coming back on the other side of this break. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back after this break. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. 
Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight is no exception as we deal with the true injustice of mandatory minimums. And we have a prime example, if you will, of that story of Mr. Alton Mills wrongfully uh, sentenced, really, and given life sentence without parole for a drug offense. He's uh, joining us tonight in this conversation, along with Greg Newburn uh, from FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And I'll tell you what, the stories tonight and the discussion, if you will, has been very informative. We also joined by Marcia Mills, the mother of Alton Mills, who feels some sense of relief uh, to have her son home. And welcome back in, folks, to the program. Thank you. All righty. Yes, and uh, we appreciate you, you folks for joining us. And uh, I'll tell you what, I want to share something uh, that I came across here, and and Alton, this was the judge, uh, Judge Aspen, uh, criticized the harsh uniform sentences he was required to impose, and he makes this statement. He said, the sad thing, I think, for all of us is to reflect upon was that the sentencing guidelines were sold to the public and to law enforcement and to the courts on the notion that disparity in sentencing would disappear and that there would be honesty uh, in sentencing in that everyone involved in a particular criminal activity would be punished proportionately with other people involved in that activity. And I think we can see by this case how much of a farcel that notion really was in its application at that time. Uh, This is the judge who, when a judge says he was forced, and we're talking about the good judges, they were forced to impose a sentence when you hear that, Greg, come from a judge, uh, it speaks volumes, I think, to the character of the judge that it recognizes that we have a serious problem in this country. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, and one of the things that, that, that we focus on at FAM is allowing judges to use their discretion. And one person in the entire process who not only doesn't have an interest in the outcome, but they hear all of the evidence. They hear the prosecution. They hear the defense. They hear they, – they know the sentencing – report if there is one they, they talk to the defendant they know the defendant's background um, if there's a victim in the case and often there's not with these drug cases but if they talk to the victim's family 
And then they have a lot of experience in this. They've seen similar cases. They know what the guidelines say. They, they, they know what other judges have done in these kinds of cases. They can look at other states and other districts. And, they can, and, and again, it's, it's an imperfect process. They're not going to get it right every time. But that's the best we can do. And so when a judge takes a look at a case and says, this is nowhere close to what I would give you, you know, I, in my experience and in my judgment and in my discretion, would give you a radically different sentence than the one that Congress requires. Congress, who probably passed this 20 years ago, who's never laid eyes on the defendant, has no idea the, the facts of the case, has no idea what surrounds the, the, this individual case, doesn't know the defendant's background and history or, or general character or what is the best thing to reduce that person's recidivism likelihood or, or anything like that. Sure. They don't know anything about it. And they're the ones making this decision. So as imperfect as a judge might be, it's orders of magnitude better than a, than a one-size-fits-all, inflexible, top-down, centralized sentencing scheme, which is what mandatory minimums are. No, absolutely. And, Alton, your thoughts on that is you – when you were there before that judge, did he seem really – he states here that he was very saddened by what he had to do. Did he express that to you? Uh, during the sentencing, that this was something he had to do that he maybe would not have done? Yes, uh, Judge Ashman, uh, he mentioned that during trial, I mean, uh, excuse me, during my sentencing, he mentioned that uh, something similar to, well, uh, Alton Mills, I'm looking to give you 30 years, but the government opposed to my sentencing, so I would have to sentence you to life because that is what the government is asking for. Now, if anyone seen uh, the interview that he had gave with uh, Reverend Al Sharpton in MSNBC News, he stated the same thing over again, that if the power would have been in his hands, I wouldn't have never got a life sentence. I probably wouldn't have got 30 years. Right. Right. So the, the, if I'm hearing you correctly, the judge said I, could, I would have given you 30 but because of the statute, I have to give you life without parole. To me, 30 years is exactly. excessive, right? Yeah, yeah. 30 years. That's, 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 that's still a long time for a, a, a young man that's 24 years old. Because 30 years, you got to do 27 years. Yeah, and on the, the clip. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I said that's still a long time. No, absolutely a long time, and we were listening to the clip earlier regarding Lee Woolard uh, out of uh, Florida. Uh, we're going to play a little bit more of that interview a little bit later in the program, but he received 20 years for shooting his rifle in the air, uh, and they made him believe this was a good deal because of the state statue and statues that were in place. Uh, and, and again, we're going to go a little bit more into that. Matter of fact, we're going to get ready to get our, research, our production team to cue that up uh, which is part two of that interview on CBS, this man did really, I mean, I'm really not getting it. I know that a person that commits murder, this is what I am sure of, a person that commits murder can walk out of prison in 20 years because in prison, 20 years is a life sentence, supposedly. 20 is life. So I can come up for parole in 20 years and can walk out the front door. What I'm still my mind is blown about is that nobody died here. Nobody was hurt here. How do you justify, and if the judge is following legislation push, 
those legislators need to be voted out of office immediately. That's just un- how do you, how do they come to that conclusion, Greg? I, I don't get it. How do you come up with that and feel justified? Yeah. So so what happened with that? And Florida, we have what's called the uh, the ten twenty life law. And if you use a gun in the commission of a felony, if you if you show the gun, it's ten years. If you fire it, it's twenty. And if you hurt somebody, it's twenty five to life. And this was passed in the late 90s when the entire country was, was really cracking down on crime, and it, everybody thought it made sense to have this sort of bumper sticker approach to criminal justice. But one of the, the – the, and everybody thought the same thing, right? This is going to be the person who robs an old lady on the street or, or robs a store with a gun, and you really want to get these guys off the street. And one of the crimes is aggravated assault. And, uh, and again, it, even in this case, what they had in mind was two rival drug dealers on the street showing each other guns or firing at each other. And they would say, well, okay, well, these folks are going to go to prison for, for 10 years or 20 years uh, to really send a message. Well, what had happened, and no one seemed to think about this at the time, except for some of us who opposed it, um, was that we have really lax gun laws in Florida. We have concealed carry laws. It's easy to get a, a gun. We have stand your ground. We have uh, a lot of these laws that, that promote the use of self-defense. Well, mm-hmm. so what you see is people who, are, who, they avail themselves of that right. They actually use their firearms in self-defense. But if a prosecutor decided that your use of your firearm was unreasonable, then you're going to get charged with aggravated assault. And if you fired a warning shot into the ground or you fired one into the, to the wall, like Marissa Alexander did in, in, in Jacksonville, um, or any of the other cases that we profiled with Sam, you were facing 20 years. And so the prosecutor would come to them and say, we're going to give you three years in prison if you take the deal, or you can roll the dice, take your chances, and go for 20. And just like I was saying earlier, the people who know that they're guilty of aggravated assault, they take the deal, and they're out three. The people who think, I was acting in self-defense, they go to trial, and it's a coin flip at that point, right? Whether a jury's going to believe your self-defense claim or not, it's a coin flip. And these folks were convicted, and they get sentenced to, to 20 years. Lee Wallet was, was, was one of them. Now, fortunately, this year, the Florida legislature repealed the mandatory minimum for aggravated assault. So we have no more 20-year sentences. FAM led the fight on that. We worked with the NRA. We got yep. it repealed. It doesn't apply to people who are currently in prison, however. Uh, so, so there are people right now who are serving 20-year sentences for aggravated assault. They never hurt anybody, and some of them have very – colorable, reasonable self-defense claims, and they're stuck in prison for 10, 15 years longer because the, the law is not retroactive. Uh, no. but, but fortunately, going forward, that won't affect anybody else. And I'll be honest with you, Greg, on that note, okay, if you know that, and I'm not saying this about you, but the legislators, they know this is a problem. Through FAM's hard work, working to have this repealed, my thought, if you want to incorporate true justice, you retroactive that to the guys that are in prison. Yeah, and, and to their credit, it, it, it really yep. isn't on the legislature right now. To their credit, and, and I, I hate to even bore your listeners with Florida-specific policies, but to their yeah. credit, a lot of the folks in the legislature want to make this retroactive, but they're being told by some of their lawyers that our Florida Constitution would forbid it. That's an open question right now. We're going to look at yep. it, and hopefully we can fix it because a lot of people could use the release. Uh, but but it really isn't a matter of political will as much as constitutional interpretation. But that's oh, really got, getting in the weeds in Florida. <laughs> no, I got you on that. And what's so bizarre about this in the state of Florida, 
Mr. Zimmerman uh, claimed, if I'm not Cliff, if I'm not mistaken, claimed make my day law is why he killed. Uh, well, stand my ground. Stand my ground. Excuse me. Why he killed Trayvon Martin? He goes into a courtroom. Now he follows the man home, the young man. After he gets uh, iced tea and some Skittles, and says he just looks like he's getting ready to do something. It's and I'm showing you the opposite of the system. Now you want to throw Mr. Mr. Mills in prison uh, for life without parole, but you in this case in Florida with. Mr. Zimmerman, he walks out of a courtroom free after taking a 17-year-old boy's life. You understand, Greg and Alton and Marsha, why people are losing faith in the criminal justice system. It's like, okay, we have this going on over here. And, Greg, that's got to be, man, we're working our tails off over here to get stuff done and changed. And then we see this massive uh, outpouring, if you will, of ridiculousness, if that's a word, uh, in, in other cases, you have a judge in Baltimore who says the, we, have no, we find no fault in these men that took Freddie Gray's life, and they decide to go with the judge, and they're all acquitted for murder while no one answers for the death of this man. You see the problem and the, and the circumstance we're in, Greg? Well, there's no doubt that there's rising frustration with the criminal justice system from, from top to bottom. And I think finally that legislators, again, on the left and the right, are, are starting to take a, a top-to-bottom look at all of the practices. And, of course, FAM, we're a single-issue uh, organization. We're a sentencing policy organization. We don't weigh in on, on police practices or anything like that. But it is symptomatic of the larger uh, cultural shift, I think, on criminal justice, where maybe in the 80s and 90s, there was this reflexive move to make everything tougher. You know, you couldn't put people in prison for long enough. And they, they were actually getting relatively creative with the ways that they would try to, uh, to incarcerate as many people as possible for as long as possible without looking at the costs and benefits. And I think finally now, and we still have a long way to go, but finally sure. now, people have come around and said, you know, we need some accountability in this system. We need to know that we're actually getting something for our money. We need to know that we're not throwing lives away for nothing. We need to know that there's actually a, a, and we need to see if there's a better way to do things. And, you know, look, Baltimore is a place that has a lot of criminal justice problems. And yet Maryland just this year repealed the enormous majority of their uh, mandatory minimum drug laws. And they did it in a, a massively bipartisan way with some very conservative Republicans uh, helping to lead that effort. So even in the places where we see pathologies in the system and where we think there might not be uh, a lot of room for reform, you're seeing Republicans and Democrats come together and do some very good things on criminal justice, probation reform, parole reform, sentencing and mandatory minimum reform, and, and all in an effort to make it fairer, to make it cheaper, and ultimately to protect public safety better. Uh, and, and everybody's on board now, and I think it's a, it's a good time for this issue. No, absolutely. I agree with you, and uh, I, I think it's important. That, and, again, we, we salute what FAM is doing out there, Greg, your hard work that you're doing. Uh, and, and, and I think that all of those things are critically important. I think judges are even saying that they're, having to, they're coming across to say, you know what, some of us do have a conscience here. We're not just out here going with status quo. We're bothered by what's going on. Uh, and I think that's something that definitely we, it seems to be at least there's some optimism, Greg, as you allude to, uh, as we've talked to members of Congress as well that are saying this is the number one priority 
uh, in the Senate, and, and I'm sorry, in the judiciary part of Congress, uh, and all of that is to say we must deal with criminal justice reform. And, fam, and, and Greg, I believe FAM falls underneath that umbrella uh, of taking action and making some things uh, take place. Uh, Alton, a question for you. Uh, I'd like you to take our listeners down the road when you got word that President Obama had granted you this what were your thoughts did you jump up and run and say man i'm out of here open the door now uh what were your what was the emotion going through you when that when the news came to you that president obama had taken action to to set you free well i'm gonna start from the beginning uh, i had talked to my attorneys early in the week and they said that something was going on but they wasn't for sure what was going on right so you know to get Clemency, you have to get a response from your sentencing judge, which my sentencing judge is Judge Aspen, which uh-huh. he submitted uh, a statement of a letter stating that I should receive clemency because of what happened to me at trial and during sentencing, right? So mm-hmm. I got his letter on a Thursday, and a friend of mine was like, what's that you got? I said, man, listen, man, I say it's either going to be Friday or Monday that I'm going to be out of here. He was like, man, you playing. I was like, no, this is the last piece of the puzzle that I was waiting for was my sentencing judge to give me his permission that I deserve to get clemency. So it was a Friday. Uh, I had just got through working out, and uh, I took a shower when I went in my room, and I was taking my morning nap. And a staff member came to the door and knocked on the door and told me that they wanted to see me in another building. So I got dressed, and as I was leaving out the unit, a couple of guys that I had told that I was finally ready to go home, they was like, you leaving now? I was like, in a minute. So I went over to the next building, and the unit manager, she, her name was Miss Scott. She didn't know what was going on, and she said, do you know why you're here? I said, yeah, I'm going to get ready to get a phone call either from the President of the United States or from my attorney stating that I'm going to get ready to be released from federal prison. And she was like, really? Because she couldn't believe it. Because there was two of us in that institution that was getting clemency. And when the phone call came through, you know, uh, all I did was uh, I accepted what uh, my attorneys had told me. And I just started crying. You know, that's all I could do because it was a lot lifted up off my shoulders. I was a free man. Once again, I got my freedom back. I was coming home to my family. And the the real key to it was that I was told that I would never see my mother and my father again. So who gets the last laugh now? Absolutely, and uh, I, I, we can't be happier for you here, uh, Alton, for uh, for your freedom, uh, for the work that Greg is doing, uh, and the support you have. I'm sure for Marcia, your mother. Uh, this is what this is what it's about, and I'll tell you right now. Uh, Cliff was sharing with us, uh, Cliff, regarding another horrific case. Uh, Cliff, in regards to the 15 year old. Um, and I'll let Cliff tell you folks about this. I want to get your thoughts on this uh, as he uh, shares this with you. Cliff? Yes, there is a, uh, a petition out on uh, change.org that uh, one of our staff here at AJC 
told us about uh, a 15 year old young man named Nick Robinson. Uh, in 2008, he was 15 and he was arrested for robbery. Uh, he told the police that he committed the crime to cover for the men who uh, actually did the robbery as the story goes. And he thought because he was a minor that, uh, you know, the, that the court would go easy on him. Uh, but instead Nick was sentenced to 68 years with a mandatory minimum of 33 years to be served in adult uh, prison system for his involvement. And when you, when you see stuff, you see a situation like that and you say, okay, um, did, did he kill five people? Uh, You know, did he lead the police on a high speed chase and endanger the lives of children through a school zone and maybe hit a kid? I mean, 68 years for robbery and 33 as a mandatory minimum at 15 years old. Um, These are the type of things that, I mean, this young man's life has been just torn away. At 15-year-old, you you make a lot of stupid decisions, a lot of immature uh, decisions, a lot of mistakes. That all given, you still deserve a chance at life, an opportunity to say, you know what, I grew up, I became an adult, I realize that there are consequences, negative consequences for my negative action, but now I'm a man and I'm, I'm ready to, uh, you know, live my life with the understanding that I have to be responsible for the actions that I take and the actions that I claim that I did, even though someone else did. Uh, yeah. This is a, uh, just a, a, a tragic situation and um, well. it definitely – deals with the fact that mandatory minimum this should never in my opinion have ever been on the table for a 15 year old boy i mean he's 15 years old uh and the judge gave him double more than double right 68 years could have stopped at 33 and greg that's what i was alluding to earlier uh that the mandatory minimum here was 33 years and then you have a judge that says i'm going to give you 38 more 35 more from that. Yeah, one of the things you see, actually, one of the things we've seen over the last 40 years or so is what we call sentence creep. And there's a ratcheting effect because every time Congress comes along and says, we're going to raise the mandatory minimum for this crime, it pushes the guideline sentences up for everything else by comparison. So everything else starts to look soft by comparison. So they just ratchet it up and up and up. And to the point now we're five years in prison, which is a really long time to actually be in prison, it seems comparatively lenient. And so over the last 40 years, when all over the country, sentences have just been ratcheted up and up and up, and the guidelines have been ratcheted up. And again, it's one of the sort of indirect, pernicious problems of mandatory minimums, because as you raise them, all the guidelines go up too. And so judges even... And look, sometimes judges are just going to throw the book at you. They just are. Sometimes you've got judges who are intolerant they don't have the same view of of uh, criminal behavior uh you know they they get sick of seeing some of the same people come in and out of the courtroom and they just throw the book at you that's inherent it's going to happen uh but when the guidelines are raised because of mandatory minimum it's going to happen more often so if you can get rid of the mandatory minimums you can get your guidelines in check and you have that transparency and accountability for judges you're going to get a lot more sane sentences than under the system we have now Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely uh, see the point there. Uh, Greg, Alton, uh, Marsha, we're going to come right back on the other side of the break. I'm going to give you some closing thoughts 
as we get ready to close out of this segment of the show uh, of how can we, where do we go from here as a country? And fam is definitely in the right direction with Greg there. Alton, I'm sure you're telling your story as we've heard it uh, on, on the news wires and all of that. Your story is being heard now. Uh, you'll be one never forgotten, one that will be told that your sentence was so outrageous, the president of the United States decided to take action. That says a lot. We're going to come back on the other side of this break with closing thoughts, how folks can get in touch with you, how we can be, uh, come together and be a part of this effort. And that is getting rid of, as Greg just said, just get rid of mandatory minimums. But his, uh, his uh, opinion and his thoughts, are being echoed in our nation's capital with our elected officials. We're going to talk about that here on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of AJC Radio and a campaign that we have started that is underway entitled Spotlight on Capitol Hill. This program is new to AJC Radio, but it is an exciting time when we take a few moments every Thursday evening to highlight members of Congress, their initiatives that are not only important to them, their constituents, and the nation as a whole. We invite you every Thursday to tune in to AJC Radio to hear your congressman or your senator and their initiatives that are here to shape a nation and to bring about change. We invite you cordially, and as we fight for justice, as we seek justice daily, we'll come together as not only the American people. Join us every Thursday for Spotlight on Capitol Hill. God bless you, and as always, God bless America. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people 
peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Fortunately, you have these situations where people who think they are innocent decide to go to trial instead of accepting a, a plea offer and they end up receiving a more severe sentence than what maybe a gang member or drug dealer would have taken. Which is what happened to Lee Wallard. The prosecutor offered you probation. Mm -hmm. No jail sentence. Right. And you didn't take it. It never dawned on me that I would lose because I hadn't done anything wrong. I protected my family, and I didn't even hurt anybody. And Wollard's sentence seems particularly harsh, says his wife, when you consider that in Florida, if you happen to kill someone while standing your ground in self-defense, you may face no charges at all. But if you shoot a warning shot just to scare them away, you'll get 20 years in prison. The Polk County State's Attorney, whose office prosecuted Wollard, refused to discuss his case. But nationally, there is a move to return some discretion to judges. Earlier this year, federal sentencing guidelines were amended to reduce prison time. And in Florida, the legislature passed a law that exempts firing warning shots from the current harsh penalties. But it comes too late for Woolard. Everything, everything is gone. Woolard has asked the Florida governor for clemency, which incidentally, his daughter's former boyfriend supports. If he doesn't get it, Lee Wallard will leave prison in July 2028, when he is 73 years old. As bizarre as it sounds, if this is what the state of Florida requires of you to make sure your family is safe, I'm willing to do it. It's a bargain. I've got, I've got three family members, my two daughters and my wife, and they're alive. They're alive because of this. It's a bargain. 20 years is a bargain. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where tonight, uh, what you've just heard, Lee Wallach's story of, of mandatory minimums. He fired a warning shot to protect his family. And the state of Florida thanked him and gave him 20 years in prison. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and the AJC radio team. 
Tonight joining us, Greg Newburn and Alton Mills and Marcia Mills addressing a very troubling issue. And Greg, when you hear that clip, I'll tell you what, it does give some optimism that Florida decided to do something uh, to repeal these harsh sentencing. So I, I got to believe that the work that you're doing uh, and that other groups are doing are making a true difference. Maybe not as quick as we'd like, but we do see some progress. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I certainly hope that we are. And, and the, that 1020 life statute, uh, particularly the aggravated assault, had been on the book since 1999, and it was the first time Florida had repealed a mandatory minimum since 1993. Uh, so we went a long time just stacking new mandatory minimums. We had 108 on the books. Now it's 107. We got rid of the aggravated assault uh, mandatory minimum. But even though it was just one, it really was one of the more pernicious ones on the books. We also have incredibly harsh uh, horrific drug trafficking mandatory minimums uh, here in Florida, one of the worst in the country. Uh, so we're working on that as well. You know, we've, we've sentenced thousands of low-level offenders to prisons. We've got uh, almost 100,000 people in prisons now. Our prison guards call them a, quote, kicking time bomb because not only are the buildings falling apart, but they're understaffed uh, and they're filled with a bunch of people who don't necessarily need to be there. Um, so yeah, we're, we've been here at FAM, we've been working in Florida for several years and, and chipping away at this stuff. And, and, you know, we only have two months every year in session to get bills passed. And we've been fortunate to pass several in the last few sessions and we're going to keep going. And, and we work in other States as well, passed a bill in Iowa this year. That's going to help uh, almost 800 drug offenders become parole eligible sooner than they otherwise would. Uh, we, we helped repeal Maryland's mandatory minimum drug laws this year. We're working right now in Pennsylvania to prevent the expansion of mandatory minimums there, working in Nebraska and in, and in some other states as well. So, uh, again, we're sort of that little engine that could, trying to do whatever we can to, uh, to affect change both at the federal and state level. Well, Greg, we need you to make a trip to Colorado. Uh, hey, Colorado's on my list, actually. I'm talking hey. to folks out there. You guys have some work to do. I want to get oh, involved my. there. Yeah, Greg, it's, you're talking about bad here, man. I mean, mean, you'll make your career here in Colorado. <laughs> it's really bad. We salute, we salute what you do, Greg. We, we salute you here on Agency Radio. Dennis, you had something for Greg. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, it's not the engine that could. It's, the, it's actually the engine that's doing it. And I tell you, I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I think it's awesome. I mean, what you're, what you're making happen as a small uh, foundation, but yet doing very great things. And I just wanted to get on the net, get on the air and say thank you for what you're doing. And also, I truly appreciate hearing from uh, Mr. Alton Mills. I tell you, thank you for your story. And I truly believe that what you went through, though, you know, nothing to be proud of or, you know, thankful for. But uh, I tell you, a lot of good things going to come from that because, uh, a lot of people are going to understand that, you know, the minimum sentences, we got we, we, sure. we to do the right thing. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, Alton, I'm going to give you an opportunity, Alton. Uh, what, tell me what you're doing now with yourself. And uh, I know things are fairly new as you reentered society. Uh, what challenges have you faced and what uh, mountains do you intend to climb to get your message out about the injustice you suffered? Well, uh, I'm still trying to make a transition back into society. Uh, a lot of things are moving real fast for me right now, but uh, I go to a program called the CARE program, and it helps you uh, transition back into society. Uh, it gets you uh, job savvy, 
uh, teach you how to use computers, how to uh, go on interviews, how to uh, dress to deal with the corporate world again. And uh, as a as a man or a woman, it teaches you how to carry yourself productive uh, in society. Uh, also, uh, I'm looking forward to going back to school, uh, hopefully next year. Uh, what I want to take up is what put me in prison is uh, criminal justice. Uh, I want to be a voice to the ones that have no understanding of what's really going on. And I want to uh, reiterate back to, I didn't get to say this, but, you know, I talked to 28 senators when I first came home. That was my first trip to Washington, D- well, my second trip to Washington, D.C. I talked to 28 senators. And that senator knew anything about what was going on in the BOP of prison. So one senator asked me, it was a female, I, I can't remember her name. She asked me if my sentence would never get commuted. She asked me how long would I would have stayed in prison. I told her I would have died in prison. She stood up and said, we got to do something about this right now. Hmm. So, I mean, wow. I feel good to be home, but I'm still transitioning because uh, right now I'm on home confinement. I got about three months and uh, 20 days left with home confinement, and I will be a completely free man. Well, we're happy to hear that, Alton. And uh, I'll tell you what, you have a friend here at AJC Radio and a Just Cause. Uh, I believe you have my information. If you don't, we'll be getting that to you. More than happy to to talk. As we have, I have not gone the journey as long as you went, but nevertheless, we went down the same road to a point. And uh, you have a friend in us. Don't ever forget that in, a, in an ally, if you will. Your story, if it needs to be told, you're always welcome here on AJC Radio as well. And uh, I, I'm very encouraged tonight uh, for the work that President Obama is doing, attempting to do, uh, to bring about some changes here in this country, who went to federal prison, who went to the hole and saw folks there in solitary confinement, and he made the statement, these are human beings. And had not been for the grace of God, there go I, there go you, there go any of us that could be caught up in a mm-hmm. system uh, that has gone, has fallen off the tracks. Great. Could I, could I mention this? Oh, uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, I'm currently a grandfather now. My daughter had a, had a beautiful baby girl. Uh, her name is Naraya. Also, one of my friends that I did over 17 years with, got his sentence, commuted today. Oh, great. That's great news. I did hear something. The president had commuted, I believe it was over 100 cases uh, today, and I'm so glad that your friend and comrade, if you will, uh, will know what freedom is here shortly. Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity, Greg. How can folks get a hold of you? How can they be a part of FAM? They need information. They want to learn more about what you do. How can folks get a hold of you, Greg? The best place to go is our website, fam.org, F-A-M-M.org. We have a lot of information there. You can read profiles like Alton's profile on there and and others just like him. You can get information about uh, the president's commutations. You can get information about the bills moving in Congress and moving in the states, uh, and you can get information about how to contact us 
uh, if you want to tell a story of a loved one who's been affected by mandatory minimums. So please visit the website, send us an email, give us a call up in Washington, and uh, we'll be happy to talk to you about anything. Um, you know, we're not active in every state right now. We just don't have the resources, but uh, we're always looking to expand. And, and like I said, Colorado is definitely on my list, and it just moved up. So uh, hopefully we can do some work there as well. Uh, but anywhere in the country, if you have a, someone who's affected by mandatory minimums, go to fam.org and, uh, and, and we'll try to get in touch. And thank you, Greg. You've been a delight and a pleasure. Very informative with the information you've had. We salute you, your passion in what you do uh, to make this world a better place and to reform the criminal justice system of America. We appreciate that so much. And well, thank you very much. I, I, thanks for having me on. No, it's, it's a privilege. We may call on you again as we uh, dig into more stuff, and you'll always be welcome on here. We, we appreciate you taking time out of your evening after working hard all day and saying, look, we want to, we're going to talk even further and have the discussion. That's very much appreciated by us and our listeners, I'm sure. Um, Alton, uh, anything you want to say in closing to our listeners as we close out this, this uh, segment tonight? Uh, one thing that uh, everybody has to understand is that even though we are coming home, work still has to be done because the reentry program here in the free world is nothing. It's nothing. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it, they're making it harder for you to transition back into society because here in Chicago, the halfway house that I went to, there's nothing there. There's no programs there. Nothing. So you got guys that was doing more in prison coming home and doing less. You're confined to a building for 24 hours for at least your first 60 days home before you can get a pass to go anywhere. So something needs to be done about that. Reentry needs to be where you have guys that's coming home that want to further their education. Guys that need uh shelters, they need homes, they need uh, job programs. I mean, there exactly is nothing. If you don't know nobody, you're not going to get a job. And we only have a very few programs here in the city of Chicago. The CARE program, which is one that I go to, which is very wonderful. And then you have the Safety Foundation. And it's over 600 some people going to these programs and a lot of people are not getting jobs. Yes. Well, we're going to be looking as to see what else can be done, not only in Chicago and places all across the United States. Um, uh, Marcia, did you have a closing thought you wanted to say? No, no. Uh, I'm uh, just glad uh, my son is home, you know, and um, hopefully, you know, uh, going to that program, you know, it will help him find him a job. No, absolutely, and we appreciate uh, uh, all of your efforts tonight. Uh, we are very grateful, and I want to say to you, uh, Alton, I'm so very sorry. My sincere apologies for what you have gone through. Um, we're very sorry. We give that to you tonight from AJC Radio and our team here. Uh, folks, have a very safe night. You're very welcome, and Alton, we'll be in touch, and Miss Mills will be in touch, and Greg, I'm sure we'll be in touch. You guys take care. Sure. Have a safe hey. Anytime you need me, just call. Again. Okay, we appreciate right. it. Thank you. Care. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thought-provoking without question, 
what answers lie ahead for the problem in the epidemic of mandatory minimums. But we see some movement in the sand, if you will, as FAM and other organizations reach out to gentlemen like Alton, uh, his comrade who was just commuted today by President Obama. Uh, we have an uphill climb, but we have to climb it until this injustice ends in a place we call freedom, we call America. We're coming right back on the other side of the break as we get ready for what you didn't know about the IRP-6. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. Tonight has been interesting, troubling at its best. Mandatory minimums, destroying lives, tearing, uh, uh, tearing families apart. We've just touched a little bit, and we've scratched the surface just a little on the issues, and FAM seems to be bringing some type of solutions. Organizations reaching out and getting a platform to discuss the problem. Uh, it was brought to our attention that a gentleman by the name of Mr. Research, known as Mr. Research, had a comment that he wanted to make. Uh, we apologize that we were unable to get him in. Uh, please feel free, Mr. Research, to call back in. Your views, your opinions, and your thoughts are very important to us, that we look at this situation from all angles and all sides. Uh, we value what you have to say. Please feel free to call us back in. Uh, we'll be here on Thursday night as well. If you want to get in and speak to this issue briefly before we start and get into the depth of our show, we want to hear what you had to say. And uh, we appreciate you taking time to call and have something to say to us. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, the segment that we all wait for is what you didn't know about the RP6. It kicks off right now. A just calls has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Serrigan about the RP6. 
It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just to decide, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us until these unbelievable events unfolded. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we lived, prayed, and worked together that we should end up dying together, because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes, and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions, the name of our company. I testify, and then Gary objected. A Donnybrook broke out, because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind, and we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time, some 200 pages, but assured us that they would be produced at the end of the day. Transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper. And I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later, they finally got a grand jury to indict us. This time, they only called one witness, an FBI agent. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story Judge H. Lee Serkin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent to see the full story, the full playwright of the RP6 tragedy. Go to YouTube, search the race card. You don't want to miss it. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. What we have learned is that the RP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored 
that uh, they were even being raided. Um, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to. Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org, sign the petition now. America's future depends on it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to what you didn't know about the IRP-6, a level of injustice that is unprecedented. Who are these six men, patriots of this country, who have sat in prison wrongfully for four years? Who are they? They are Dave Zappolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. These are men who set out on a journey to embrace the entrepreneur spirit. And they were thanked by being locked up wrongfully. And tonight on the What You Didn't Know About the RP6, we deal with what we've dealt with on this show tonight. Mandatory minimums, but this is unique on its own. Judge Arguello was given what they call sentencing guidelines, but that statement is very similar to mandatory minimums. However, hers is actually falls under sentencing guidelines with discretion. The PSR, which is the pre-sentencing report done in all sentencing of cases, actually recommended less time for these six men. Again, they were wrongfully convicted, but hypothetically, with guilt, their sentences were outrageous. Seven to 11 years, no prior record, no prior issues whatsoever. What we talk about tonight is how and why do judges even under the recommendation of the pre-sentencing report, still go out of their way to bring injustice, Cliff, to these six men. How do we address that issue, and what is, what is that about? Yeah, it's not reasonable for the judge to go outside of the sentencing guideline because the pre-sentencing guideline, is, the things that are taken into account is the, uh, the type of so-called crime that was committed, the person that you are, your uh, your, your involvement in your community, the type of job you're able to get. So there is extensive research that is done by the uh, probation's office to basically come up with that sentencing guideline. But what you find, especially in the case of Judge uh, Christine Arguello, is after she ran a sham of a, of a trial, 
and allowed travesty after travesty to happen with the uh, with the prosecutor and herself. Um, that she then took those sentencing guidelines and deviated from them completely. And said, said, "Okay, I'm not going to stick to the guidelines. Why? Because I'm vindictive against these six men. I don't appreciate the fact they came in my courtroom and uh, and you know basically." Uh, exercise their constitutional rights by representing themselves and just the fact that she was she wanted to show her so-called power as a judge and so you you find this among judges and it 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 basically becomes an injustice of the justice system because you have a judge who has a personal vendetta and applies that towards the sentencing well, of a, of the of a defendant. Well, in most cases, most judges are supposed to really take into account what that pre-sentencing report is. Yes, uh, this is a this is mandatory minimums being enforced by corrupted judges. It just has a different face on it. Pre-sentencing guidelines is no different. Uh, the, and the fact that she had, when you add with discretion. Guidelines are out the window because it's at the discretion of the judge now to do what he or she chooses to do, regardless of what their motives are. That's unacceptable and cannot happen. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion, folks. Pre-sentencing, uh, I'm sorry, the sentencing guidelines, something we have to take a look at as well, brought this injustice to these six men. Lisa, who are the perpetrators, meaning those that look like they incorporate justice, but they really do not. Lisa, the perpetrators of justice in regards to the IRP-6 case? Yes, they are U.S. Attorney John Walsh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunita Hazra, Attorney Greg Goldberg, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, Appellate Judge Jerome Holmes, Appellate Judge Bobby Baldock, Appellate Judge Harris Hart, Federal Judge R. Brooke Jackson, Magistrate Judge Craig Schaefer, Court Reporter Darlene Martinez, FBI Agent John Smith, FBI agent Robert Moen, former federal agent John Epke, former federal agent Gary Hilberry, attorney Thomas Goodread, attorney Clifford Barnard, attorney Thomas Richard, attorney Robert Berger, attorney Mitchell Baker, attorney Boston Stanton Jr., attorney Rick Kornfeld, attorney Mark Garagos, Susan Holland of ETI Professional Services, and Samuel K. Thurman. And thank you for that, Lisa. And I'm Lamont Banks, along for Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and the entire AJC radio team. Special thanks to, to, to our tonight. Join us next time on AJC Radio as we continue to bring the message of justice all around the globe.